0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Of Course China, the podcast where China expats Zivin Fernando bring forth the stories and know how of people making their mark in the Middle Kingdom. In today's episode, recorded in the beginning of January in Beijing, we talk to Jeremiah Jenny, a writer and history teacher living in Beijing since 2002. If you enjoy the episode, Please take a moment to subscribe to our channel and leave us a review. We appreciate it. Hi, Jeremiah. Hey, sir. how you doing? Very official, we are.
1: Yeah. I know it feels like yeah, this is this is very much like you know state meeting yeah. <laughs> <It's laughs> negotiating some kind of boundary or truce or something
0: there was uh, a lot of that going on in uh, some of the hutongs around maybe uh, a, years ago? An, an
1: earlier era perhaps yeah yeah all
0: right so um i wanted to ask you why did you come to china
1: uh yeah that's that's a question my mom asked me a lot um yeah you know i when i was in college i i really wanted to study history i've always loved history and uh you know, one of the things about when I was in college, which was you know in the late Middle Ages, their registrations were done by going into the gymnasium at assigned times and running to a table and signing your name for the classes you wanted. And it just turned out that the history, history classes that were about US history were just completely full. And so I kind of got shuff, shuff, shuffled over to the other tables and uh, I started taking classes in all other kinds of history. and. It, got drawn to Asian history. There are some good professors where I went to school that I really enjoyed taking the classes. Uh, My junior year, I did a year in Singapore doing a project looking at the uh, Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia. After I graduated, I spent some time working in Washington, D.C. and then decided, you know, maybe I should just continue my love of history and you know, I thought about what aspects of history and Asian history particularly interested me and I I've always been you know, thinking about like China, but particularly thinking about China in terms of empire. And so you know, studying the last empire of China, the Qing Empire, studying the era of imperialism in China. And of course, to do all of that, I was gonna have to do work in the Chinese archives, but to do that, of course, you need to learn the Chinese language. And all of that eventually brought me to Beijing in about 2002. And uh, for the first two years I was here, I spent much of my time just kind of, you know, in intensive language programs, um, you know, trying to uh get my Chinese speaking to some extent, but a lot of it was reading and right. being able to use documents up to kind of some kind of like a to to good level. Did and you did you did you study in a did private tutor,
0: with a center, a university,
1: what was it? Uh, so the first year I was at Peking University. I was at a, a program there, and then the second year, this was, I guess, 2003 and 2004, I was at a program called IUP, which is a, an, old pro, an older program. It's been going on since the middle of the 20th century, first in Taiwan, and it, it was the program that a lot of academics, um, people who work in the U.S. government, you know, went to get their, it's, it's Chinese boot camp. I mean, they, they go in there and they say, you know, you, you come to China, but you're not gonna see China. You know, there's a forbidden city, you won't see it. There's a summer palace, forget about it. You're gonna see the classroom, you're gonna see our library, and you're gonna see whatever hovel that you sleep in, and that's what we're gonna do for the next year. And, you know, I I make it sound pretty harsh, but it's a really great way to kind of just get your Chinese up to a a level that it needs to be, especially if you're doing things professionally. Although the way they teach you, especially if you're studying history, is kind of weird in the sense that like, you know, I I knew how to say, you know, the semi-feudal, semi-colonial state of China in the 19th century before I knew how to ask for ketchup in a restaurant. (laughs) So that was was a little bit odd. But yeah, that's what I I did for the first couple of years.
0: And you know how to ask for ketchup today.
1: I do know how to ask for ketchup today. Although, you know, one of the challenges with the way I studied Chinese, and this is not any fault of my teachers, who were the most patient, saintly people you could ever possibly imagine, because I am, as I'm reminded repeatedly by people I speak to here, An idiot and uh, is that I spent a lot of time like looking at like learning to read characters and that's great so I really if, if I was gonna go back and learn Chinese again today the first thing I would do I think is spend most of my time not worrying about learning to read and write characters but just like drilling the tones and the pronunciation like early on and just really hard because there are so many things that you know, little mistakes I kind of picked up my first couple years of speaking Chinese that I still have today. You know, like a lot of sort of middle-aged, white foreigners speaking Chinese. Me and the tones, we're we're not as close friends as we should be or we were in the past. Like, we're trying to reconnect, like me and fourth tone, we're texting a little bit, we might hang out later. But like, I'm I'm trying to make those connections again so that my Chinese doesn't, you know, perpetually sound like I'm seven years old with a head injury. Do you need to use a lot of Chinese in daily life in Beijing? You know, these days uh, in work, sure. If I'm working with colleagues who are who are Chinese, it's sometimes it's easier to speak Chinese. But what often happened up a lot of my professional life, either working in academic programs or working in my own company, a lot of the people I work with from China, they have the same kind of it's the same situation I have, but in reverse. They understand English really, really well. They, it's just sometimes responding in English, it's hard to sometimes articulate what we want to say in a language that's not our own. And anyone who studied a foreign language knows this. We always express ourselves better and with more nuance in our in our native tongue. And so, what ends up happening usually is that a lot of my colleagues and I—they all speak Chinese—and I will speak English. And it's kind of a situation that we were that I think of like speaking Star Wars you ever seen the Star Wars movies? Everybody speaks their own language, and everyone seems to understand what's being said. No one ever actually speaks a foreign language except for that one robot. You know, you know, there's like Han Solo and Chewbacca, and they're sitting there, and like Han's like, "Well, I don't know. It must be like the hyperdrive." And Chewbacca's like, Barrr. "Well, no, I don't think it's the third thing yeah. from the left." I'm like, "How yeah. is this even?" Yeah, that, that's kind of what ends up happening. <laughs> All right. So what's a historian in
0: in Beijing what, what what your days look like
1: Uh so for the last few years I've run a company called Beijing by foot mm-hmm. and for a long time I was a full-time teacher teaching history for American students who were studying in China in a study abroad program kind of like the one I went to when I went to Singapore when I was in university And so I still teach but usually i to teach about one course a semester so an average day for me probably looks a little bit like in the morning um, i'll sometimes have a class in the afternoon i'll be working with a group either a school group a group from an embassy group of travelers or maybe a, a visiting program from another country and they'll want to do a program in beijing looking at the history of the city and so what i do in some ways it's a little bit like being a tour guide but with the idea of trying to create a lesson plan that's both something they want to learn and also based on an area that we're going to be visiting. So for example, if we want to talk about what's the impact of imperialism and historical memory in China today, what's this legacy of this thing called the century of humiliation? Why is this such a big deal in sort of Chinese nationalism today? Well, yeah, we could sit in a conference room and I could show some slides and we could talk about it, or we could just go out to the Yuan Mingyan at the old summer palace and say, okay, this is this incredible imperial disneyland that was being constructed you know piece by piece you know building by building for 150 years and then a whole lot of white people just burned this place to the ground and uh see that's not totally fair because the british didn't send also a lot of indian soldiers to fight in their battle let's just say the armies of the british and french wiped that thing to the ground and you know that Those ruins are here, everyone's here. They're kind of taking us in, this is the story. And so when we talk about it, it has resonance. And that's one of the reasons too, you know, why I've been here for a long time, is Mm -hmm. as a teacher, when I was teaching full-time, and even now when I teach part-time, if you're gonna teach history about China, the best place to do it is in China. Right. Um, And you know, the same thing too, with being uh, somebody who works in kind of educational travel and working with groups. If you're gonna talk about China, if you're gonna get people to appreciate China and Chinese history. Let's do it here. Let's have these conversations, but let's do it at the site. So that's kind of what I spent a lot of my days doing. Right, so uh, you're basically immersed in
0: history of, of, of China and Beijing and China, I guess, right?
1: It is, I mean, if I if I wasn't doing this, if I was say like at a desk job in, uh, you know, back home in the United States, I would spend my free time, you know, the weekends reading books about Chinese history and, you know, so, I mean, the fact that I get paid to do this, uh, is just, it, 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 kind of boggles my mind every morning and you know, it's, 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 I'm pretty grateful that I, I I'm able to kind of this do it, that. It's, it's,
0: it's, it's interesting. Do you, do you always know you, you, I mean, you always like history as a, as a little kid too?
1: You know, I think I like stories and I love the way that, you know, maybe in school, you know, we went to math class. And there was a lot of theories and formula. In, in English class, there were stories, but it seemed like a lot of it was diagramming sentences. In history class, though, it was about the stories. It was about you know what this person did or what these people did or you know what how we got from to, to this point. You know, and I just found that to be really fascinating. I, I know that not everybody does. I know a lot of people think that history class is like, oh, God damn, I got to remember those dates, remember that guy's name, and I get that. My my goal, I think, when I think of history really being about the stories, I think that was what attracted me to it. And also for me, that's kind of how I approach teaching it. Because I think people remember the stories. And I, I you know, it, it's tough because you don't want to turn complicated historical, you know, uh, events or eras into like you know, anecdotes. But I do think for a lot of people that if you have a story that they can hang, you know, their understanding, or to kind of take, take hold of, then it becomes easier to then also talk about some of the dynamics and context around that. And I think that helps people, at least for me anyway, that helped me to really appreciate some of these really important things in history. And I hope that, you know, in my own small and somewhat inarticulate way, I'm able to do that for other people as well.
0: Is China history more interesting than other countries' history? Or, or is it... Or is it like uh, every country has, I mean, not every, but many countries have
1: interesting history? Well, I think with China, first of all, there's it's obviously a lot of it. Right. Um, you know, I remember uh, in graduate school when we were taking our qualifying exams and the people who studied, majored in, like, or focused on U.S. history were like, yeah, man, I got to learn everything about the Gilded Age. I'm like, how long was the Gilded Age? It was like a decade. I've got... 5,000 years here, people, like, come on. Um, so there's that. But I think, too, part of it is that and this is, a, I mean, for people in China, this is like, of course, this is our history. This is, we, we know this stuff really cold, but it's amazing that you have this incredible body of history. It's you know, thousands of years of events. How many thousands of years is a little bit of some dispute, but thousands of years of, of these events and historical figures. Who are as famous and as important, and and are still cultural touchstones in a way in China, that you know in the United States we have George Washington, we have you know England, you know they have you know you know oh, you can go back to like things like King Arthur or you know some of the queens and kings. In China, you have this huge pantheon of historical figures and events that, frankly, most people outside of kind of Asia aren't that aware of, and. I just found that to be amazing like when you when you kind of come here and you're like wow there was all this history i learned about the rest of the world and now there is like almost this whole other universe of history you know it's one of the things I, i've never really been i mean i've read like a, a lot of like fairly geeky uh americans i've read like the lord of the rings and i've read a couple of like the uh, game of thrones books but i've never been totally into like the whole fiction science fiction science science fiction fantasy genre mm-hmm. because it's like why am I going to learn about this whole universe of like mm-hmm. history and myth mythology when there they are actual on this planet whole sections of the globe that have an amazingly complicated and rich history mythology um, that, that I can explore that actually has some relevance to you know real people did you did you know much about it before you
0: you thought oh, I want I want to learn
1: Chinese history? Going to college, no. no. Uh, you know, something,
0: I, something ignited something, right? Like you learn some of it and then you're like, wow.
1: Yeah, I think that was a big part of it. You know, I, I mean, I once you kind of, you're like, once you start pulling that thread, you're like, huh, so this Mao guy seems pretty important. Right. Um, and you start going back and back and back. And, you know, if you if, for those people who, if, you, if you're a person who loves history, this, this will not come as a shock. But it's just like, you know, you start like, you see, like oh, I got to find out, like, who was that guy who talked to that guy? Who was that, you know, this group of women who were like, what were they doing, you know, on that boat in the 18th century writing poetry when I thought, like, all these women were supposed to be, like, you know, at home, bound foot and illiterate? Like, what's going on with that? Let's find out. And, you know, that's, for me, that just... It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's the kind of thing, like, you wake up in the morning, it's like, I, one thing I really wanted to find out today, I got to go make sure I can find that book. Can you make friends with people that don't like history? Uh, sure.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's really, some people are not really into that at all, right? No, I, I get that. Uh, you get that? I mean, yeah. well, what's the difference between a person that likes history or not? I mean, I don't
1: know. It's, uh... Well, you <laughs> know, I mean, it's, it's, they're generally not as much fun in pub quizzes. Um, no. But, you know, I, I get people, I get the idea that the subject of history for some people brings up bad memories. As I said, I think part of it's the way a lot of times history was taught in school. Right, the way they taught it, yeah. And I and I think that's where a lot of people kind of that's their re, that's the reaction like oh history I remember that class that was just that was the worst
0: I think with history for me it's like um, it was one of the subjects when that's when I graduated I was like oh I should have listened more this is really interesting now I I, I realize
1: <laughs> I, I I think it's a, it's true. I, I, you know, as you get older, you start to appreciate it more. I mean, when I was a kid, my, my father liked to have what we think of as sort of forced family fun. And, you know, it would be pulling on the side of the road to, like, look at the historical marker of, like, this is where the first, you know, uh, you know lumber mill in Gothstown, New Hampshire was located. And, you are know, like, oh, great. That's, that, you yeah, know, that, that mill is great, Dad. It's not there anymore. But there is a McDonald's down the road that I'm <laughs> definitely interested in. Yeah. And I think as, as I've gotten older, I, I now, I am that person, um, you know, right. I, I, so, yeah, I can see
0: that. I came here 17 years ago and I, I don't, in the first few years, I didn't know much of the history of China, and, um, and after I learned some, more of the recent history, 100 years, um, I, I became much less frustrated with things. It's like i understood them better like uh, some things that i used to frustrate me I, I understood why they're doing it or at least i formed an opinion of why they're doing it it made me feel a bit like okay i understand
1: I, yeah i think that's i think that comes with both learning the, learning a little bit about the the culture i think also comes with just kind of talking to people and kind of being willing to hear the perspective You know, I I remember once, many, many years ago, kind of complaining, as is not unusual among foreigners in China, about the reluctance of some of our friends and neighbors to wait patiently in line. And I had one of my older Beijing friends say to me once, he goes, he kind of said in Chinese, he says, you know, you remember that. 60 years ago there were like two people one person waited patiently in line the other person got the food they wanted you know old habits die hard just give us a break <laughs> and you know he was kind of being tongue in cheek but not I mean kind of at a point and you know one of the things I think I realized the most being overseas not just in China but just going overseas is just how nerf cushy ridiculously white bread uh easy my life was or is given about where I was born and how I was brought up. And that was a total accident. And you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes that Americans make, although it's not just Americans, but that's kind of where I come from, is this the thing where we go through you know, we kind of go through life um running a race and not realizing that there were there were reasons that we kind of got to start the race you know 20 30 40 50 meters down the track exactly and then you know i i look at how hard people here work and the lives that they had growing up and i realized that if i grew up here uh they would have eaten me for lunch like i i would i would have been just roadkill On on their on their on their path. These are people I know, friends of mine in in China. I would have been roadkill on their on their on their way to success, because I did not have to work in my life nearly as hard as people work here uh, just to kind of get by. I mean, you think about one thing. I think about is like you know, you know, it's a joke. There's a lot of people in China, right? And like when I talk to school student groups some people always ask me, and they're like, "So when we come to China, what's the one thing we got to be prepared for?" And I'm like, "Well, there's a lot of people here," and everyone laughs, like, "Yeah, it's funny because it's like 1.4 billion people." I'm like, "No, there's there's a lot there's a lot of people here. Like, your whole for anyone who's here, your whole existence is 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 influenced and determined by the fact that you are one like mammal in a crowd of many, many, many other mammals. Well, think about just just like getting on the subway. Imagine growing up where like everything." any of us have ever had to compete for like that place in school the the girl in your high school class the you know the job you know anything like that um you were competing against five six times the competition or i was i would have had to compete against five or six times the competition i was competing against when i was back home and you know that when i when i thought about that right and then I realized that, yeah, you know, people in Beijing can get a little pushy, shovy on the subway and yeah, people waiting in line is, is something that other people do. And, uh, you know, that, uh, as you said, you know, once you start through that thinking about that way, you're like, all right, like, I don't totally like it, but I get it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. selfishness today in my uh, view comes from not having it before. And now I have it. I don't want to lose it. It's mine. You know, stuff like that yeah. that I see from people. And uh, if you learn the history of the last hundred years, I think uh, your life in China would be a bit easier.
1: Well, I think so. I think, you know, even in terms of like politics, you know, you think about like one of the things I, I've looked at to a look at the history is all right, I come out of the when I first came to China. Like, you know, this is about the same time you did. Right. One of the things that surprised me the most was just, like, how supportive people here were of the system. Mm-hmm. And I grew up, I'm a product of, like, 1980s America. Like, I was a kid in the 80s, and, like, I grew up with this thought that if you live under communism, right, your life was just like this, This you were, you were just miserable, and you were just waiting each day for Sylvester Stallone to show up and, like, liberate you, and then feed you a cheeseburger, and, you know, and that was the way it worked. And so when I came here and everyone's like, yeah, you know, well, yeah, it's it, it's it's okay. And I'm like, what do you mean, okay? Like, you know, I'm not Sylvester Stallone, but I could probably get him on the phone for you. Is that something you want? And what I realized is that, you know, there were a lot of things about here, just like anywhere, that were not great. But one of the things that I think surprised me the most when I started looking at history, when I started looking at the history, I think really kind of changed my perspective was that, you know, for the last 200 years in China, you know, things, the, the worst things that have happened to China have generally happened when the government's been too weak. You think about like the century of humiliation under foreign imperialism, you know, culminating in the occupation of China by the Japanese. You can even make an argument that even some of the aspects of 20th century, things like the Cultural Revolution, occurred because the government kind of advocated responsibility for governing society. If you look at it from that perspective and you think okay what's the worst that could happen well in the west the worst that can happen at least in our western political experience has been like the rise of a hitler or a rise of like you know a stalin or something so our political systems are chaotic messy ridiculously inefficient you know contraptions that don't really work but they make it really hard for somebody to seize total power right you know unless you have a bunch of crazy redneck friends who want to take over a capitol building yeah but that's another issue so in our system, we're willing to put up with a lot of like craziness as long as it doesn't lead to tyranny. I think in China, I a lot of people here, they feel like, well, we'll put up with a little bit more authoritarianism and you know restrictions if it means that we don't have the kind of chaos that had beset us in the past or that sometimes we see in other countries. And I'm not saying I agree with that. I mean, what I'm saying is that's not what I would choose for me. I don't right. actually think that's the system of government that I think works best, but that's my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. But when someone tells me that they, they feel differently, I may disagree with them, but I understand. Right, right. You know what I mean? And it's 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 a little bit like what Chris Rock one time said about OJ. I'm not saying I would have killed her, but I understand. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I get... I, 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 studying history, I think, really has helped me to kind of yeah. put me in the mindset of like, all right, what you're saying, this isn't propaganda, this isn't just like, you know, you're just not feeding me a line. This is coming from a lived experience and also a historical experience, and uh, I get that.
0: I think, yeah, I think uh, knowing more history, if any, any kind of history, may, maybe makes you you're more balanced thinking, thinker, at at the very least, you know, like understanding things better even things happening today because of history, right? It's like every country has its own complex. Yes. It's just a different complex. So um, do, you, do do they teach uh, kids at school in China? Mm. Kids, primary school, uh, middle school, high school. Uh, I know they don't study a lot of world history. My kids go to Chinese school. Yeah. It's uh, starting to be a bit of a problem for me. <laughs> But they study Chinese history. Do they study all Chinese history? Do you
1: know? Do you have any idea what, what kind of history they study? Well, I, I, one of the things I, I looked at over the years, I've taken a look at like high school textbooks. Okay. Textbooks are fascinating. Yeah, because they really in the
0: U.S. too. Oh yeah, as, I mean, you know,
1: yeah. You take a look at you know, if you want to see kind of what a society thinks is important, take a look at the textbooks they give their kids, and, oh. and, and, and it can be quite scary sometimes. What it what comes out of places like, you know. Uh, China and Kansas but <laughs> the uh, you know they do learn a lot of I think it's interesting I think one of the interesting things about kids in, in China today and even adults too you go to a place like the Forbidden City I think people know their own history a lot better than Americans know their I'm own history I think there's a couple reasons for that some of them are cultural some of them is just also pop culture so many so much of the pop culture in China involves historical dramas historical tv shows historical movies so a lot of these characters that you know a lot of people know the princes and princesses if you will or consorts of like the Qing emperors about as well as a lot of kids in the west know the Avengers right right so there's that and even though these are pop culture representations of them they're still based on real figures so it's there's kind of a connection there so I think that, you know, in when I work when at the times when I've worked with like Chinese students, I, I'm really amazed at the, the level the deep level of background knowledge a lot of them have of their own history. And I think that's really cool. I think there are some challenges though. I think one is that in the recent years there has been a turn away from world history, especially different comparative world systems. I think also there's the limitations of the patriotic education curriculum that came into play since the nineteen nineties. And right. what's interesting about the systems is, is that if you look at the 19th century, for example, which is the era I kind of study the most, and I, 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 when I'm, I work a lot in imperialism and colonialism. If you take a look at this, the textbooks of that era, it's the Opium War, the Boxer War, these kind of things. It's not that different from the way I would tell the story mm. in my own class. It lacks a little in nuance, but it's pretty much the same. You know, there's no way to parse it. Imperialism profoundly sucks. And it okay. profoundly sucked here as much as it sucked you know as much as it sucked anywhere in the world. It but it's when you get to the 20th century right. that things start to get a little bit weird because the 20th century textbooks tend to either uh, minimize or completely uh, you know remove some of the more devastating events of the 20th century which gives I think, a lot of kids here a little bit of a skewed version of their recent past and that's troubling. And it's troubling whether you have know, a textbook like in places in the United States that minimize, for example, slavery or try to recast the Civil War as being about you know, a lost cause or state's rights. It's troubling here, too, when major events that were, you know, not just major events in China, a you know, like great leap forward, You had 20, 25 million people that were possibly, mm-hmm. you know, victims of this you know, famine. That's a world historical event. That's an right. awful lot of our fellow human beings, and so when those things get removed from history, that's that. As someone who teaches history loves history, is troubling.
0: They, they don't know. They don't know that. I mean, the China, like that m- tens of millions of people died. Today, um, they they're just removed. It's just removed, or it's just portrayed in a different for different reasons. It's portrayed as
1: three years of natural disasters. and right, it minimizes right. any discussion of any government of policies events. or political right. campaigns that would have led up to that or caused that right. situation. And so, you know. I see, I see. So
0: it, it's, it's done like this. So they know that tens of millions of people died from starvation, but uh, they don't know. Why?
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, so, give an example. I mean, you look at textbooks in the United States and there were some textbooks not that not long ago enough that would talk about how like, you know, on the plantations in the South, there were good masters and the slaves were happy and treated as members of the family. It doesn't remove, it It mentions the fact that there was slavery, but it tends to cast it in a way that would radically change the perspective. I mean, it would make it easier for somebody who was say, a white student to go, oh, well, yeah, that was bad, but it wasn't that bad. The same way you could, if you were say, someone from China in the 21st century go, yes when in the 1980s our country was desperately poor but that had everything to do with the fact that it was that imperialism which definitely was a part of that and nothing to do with anything that happened after say 1949
0: so 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 china uh is criticized on these kind of issues but you're saying that uh, well you know uh, the countries criticizing uh they also should look at themselves in some things
1: well, I think there is. it is one of the things about this patriotic education curriculum, especially when it refers to the 19th century or the era known as the century of humiliation between the Opium War and 1949, is that it, it does also remind students that a lot of the countries that were carrying out these activities were the same countries that, just coincidentally, are China's biggest critics today. And so it creates the context for a narrative where you can, which, you know, just like any good propaganda campaign has elements of truth those countries are just trying to do today with them nobel prizes what they did that they couldn't do 100 years ago with gunboats right and you can see why that is a narrative that would have resonance here even if it's not necessarily The, the case yeah i mean what you're saying which is that you know of course i i think that you know it is it is a it is annoying to me when we have people from say the United States, my own country, and they kind of unquestioningly, you know, look at the human rights records of other countries and go, oh my goodness, that's terrible. And like, as if the United States is completely without blemish in this area, in fact, there are significant problems starting with the fact that we made an entire race of people work for free for the better part of 300 years. Um, But I also want to be careful too, into slipping into kind of a relativism. The reason why you know, I, I know about slavery too. It, it, the textbooks are flawed, right?
0: But, you can, but there's, uh,
1: but there are arguments about that. There are debates about that. I can go to the movies and see right. a movie that tells me that you know, that depicts the horrors of that. And is that a, is that perfect? Is that enough? Absolutely not. But it's there, yeah, and yeah. there is no aspect of that that I think would have been made better if we just simply said, you know, we really shouldn't talk about that because it's. Divine. Mm. you know, we shouldn't talk about race because that's it's a divisive issue and that dividing is what really brings us, makes us weaker. <laughs> and, you know, there are people in the U.S. who talk like that. Yeah. And uh, they are, uh, the technical term in the historical field is um,
0: uh, morons. <laughs> but, but did they really believe that? You sounded like uh, my wife's mom, maybe. I mean, not that I heard her say this, but you know what I mean? Like, some of them, like, almost naively and innocently saying that
1: some of them. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, the banality of <laughs> Uh I mean, that, that and part of that, too, again, part of that, too, is that the educational system for a right. lot of people growing right. up in the U.S. and a lot of right. countries. I have groups from England and we talk about the Boxer War, the Opium War, like, we never learned any of this stuff in school. Or maybe we mentioned it. Right. And I'm like, really? Because, you know, I'm not British and there are many reasons for that, starting with a war in the 18th century. But, you i gotta think that imperialism is a pretty big reason why the britain had a decent standard of living into the 20th century and uh you know same thing in the u.s you know we need to be aware of this again that said the re i think it's very important to note that the one of the most the biggest differences is these things can be debated they can be talked about and there are differences of degrees I, you know this whole idea like this whataboutism well this is bad, that's bad, so they cancel each other out. Right. No, two right. first of all, two things can be bad at the same time, and one thing can be more wrong than the other. Right. Wrong is not a binary state. It is wrong, for example, to call a tomato a vegetable. Mm. It is very wrong to call it, you know, a cat. And, you know, there are there are human rights issues even yeah, that need to be discussed yeah. that are We I probably understand. won't get into those because then they will just hit us so with a cattle prod, but you know what I mean?
0: Yes, so 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 history is a powerful tool. I mean, uh, the way that uh, you may bend it, some authorities in certain, you know it's a very powerful tool to use.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the old cliche: shape. he who controls the past controls the present, controls the future. You know, I yeah. think i probably just totally mangled that quote, which is you know kicked <laughs> out of any of the history pubs. Right. But yeah, obviously, one of the things that that any regime, government, political system, elite, whatever hat you have one of the things they will always try to do is shape the narrative of the past. And part of that is sometimes to create a teleology that says that what is was always meant to be, or they will shape the past to kind of create a narrative that justifies the present. And this is something that happens in almost every context, in every culture, in every country. But in some places, you just kind of, the process by which that happens is just a little bit more violent and by, I don't mean by violent always necessarily think of violence against people but I mean you know, violence against or violence against truth what I mean is like violence against the process by which we learn We learn violence against the way we research violence against the way we teach you know the, the, the way that we you know restrict those activities and I think you know there are countries that do that more than others
0: so your, your job is basically seek for the facts and truths and 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 uh, tell it to people, teach it to people.
1: I love your optimism in me, Ziv, but if I was looking for truth, if I was looking for, I would be in the I'd, I'd theology. Okay. Uh, if I was looking for facts, I think I, you know, or, provable, or proofs, of, like things that could be proven QED, I'd be a mathematician. History is very much about just trying to find the perspectives, to bring out those perspectives, to bring out those stories, to bring out the, the data that we have, knowing that it is fundamentally flawed and perfect and the, trying to use the judgment as best as we can while you know standing on the shoulders of the historians and people who have done research before the men and women who have written stuff before and try to put the data and the information as imperfect as is into that context and try to come up with a new way of understanding something that maybe someone has written about before or maybe something no one has written about before but something that will help us to understand the past better and yeah, hopefully to understand a little bit more about the present and the future and, make, and you know, try to, in, in some ways, I think the best kind of history, too, is one that challenges preconceived notions and especially challenges um, narratives that have been kind of imposed by elites, by states, by parties, by uh, society, you know. We've looked at it this way for a long time. Why? Isn't there another way we can look at this? Let's take a look. Let's, let's run the tape again.
0: So it's not that dry. Okay. it's, it's, it's uh, finding perspectives okay um, let's talk just before we finish let's talk more about China's history so if I don't know anything about China's history um, what's the most fascinating era or part of it where should I start Wow <laughs> what's the what what do you would you recommend
1: well I think again this is just purely subjective
0: sure what do you like I guess
1: if I was uh, if I was to pick a particular era of Chinese history and 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 not just for its relevance to today, for example. Like, you know, yes. I think it's good that people would learn about the 19th and 20th no, century as relevant for today, but I might look at sort of the, the Tang dynasty. So going Tang dynasty. So going back to like going back to like the sixth, seventh century. Sixth seventh century, okay. In that era, or you know um sorry, sorry, excuse me, I'm taking that back for a second. Seventh or eighth century. Seventh or eighth century. I my, I have a thing with numbers. I don't remember them well, which is actually.
0: Not good for your story.
1: Yeah, yeah you know, I remember dates sometimes, but then what happens is when I try to add them up, it, you know, I, I one time told a class that the US was 400 years old, not because I didn't know the date 1776, so I couldn't do the math in my ah, head. Okay. <laughs> and the students always laugh, like, hey, you can't remember numbers. I'm like, yeah, I also calculate your grades. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, how many dynasties there were?
1: How many? Yeah. It depends, how on ca- it depends how you count on them because these, first of all, the use of the term dynasty is uh, kind of a, is a little bit misleading because dynasty kind of implies like this is like one, like a family right. takes the throne. But these really, a dynasty implies a continuity that doesn't really necessarily exist in Chinese history. These are really kind of, div- indiv- these are states that have risen and fallen, sometimes in succession, but sometimes overlapping in each other. And also some of these states that are kind of, part of this dynastic chronology, mm-hmm. were also created by people who, while people, well today the government in China will insist are Chinese, at the time, Still people living in China probably didn't see them as being the same. Right, and, you know, people right. were coming from the outside. And so you have like the major dynasties going back to the first, well, really the first kind of imperial dynasty, which is the Qin dynasty, because before that, you had a system that was slightly different. But then the Qin dynasty, the Han dynasty, then you have the Sui and the Tang, then the Song Dynasty, which was in the kind of the beginning around you know the you're talking like the uh, 10th, 11th, 12th into the 13th century. Then you have the Mongolians invading in the 13th century. They controlled China for about 100 years. And then you have the Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty, or the the final two. These are the major ones. But in between these, in between these major dynasties, you also have periods of disunity as well, when you have rival kingdoms and rival states. Some get afforded the title of dynasty in the chronology. Some are just kingdoms, and a lot of them are happening at the same time. Okay, so it's, it's so much more complicated. Much more complicated. dynasties. Yeah. all right. And I think part of this thing too is today in China, there's a real desire to create this kind of uh, this this idea that China is a fixed concept that extends back into some kind of historical, distant historical path, and it's been the same continuous, unified, leading inexorably to this moment. And that's the story you see when you go into the museums. But what, when you really look at Chinese history, you realize that it's the disunity and the complexity and the messiness and the lack of continuity that is actually the most fascinating part of the story. For someone from outside.
0: Well, you know, I think that, that's true.
1: But of course, someone who's not in charge of trying to like keep a very diverse country together—that yeah. this, you know, doesn't always fit together as neatly as it may look like on the map. But at the same time, I think that—and maybe this, maybe this is just me—history is most interesting when it's messy. Mm.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yes. Everybody likes to when you watch a when you watch a, a game, you you're waiting for the fight, no?
1: Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> uh the occasional times that i watch european football um uh, you know uh waiting waiting for someone to uh do something um you know those those games you you want to see action right you know right. a defensive battle is fascinating for those people who really understand the game and they, they but really the average fan just wants to see somebody head the ball and you know yeah yeah
0: so you say tang dynasty
1: yeah the reason I said the Tang Dynasty is that it was the period of time, really, in Chinese history when China was at its most open. The If you go to the, the Tang Dynasty capital of Chang'an, which is today the city of the the latter day city of Xi'an, kind of built sort of in that on that that area, Chang'an at that time, if you were to Chang'an in like the seventh or eighth century, this was the global capital. This was, you know. New York, London, Tokyo, rolled into one. This was the place you could go walk through the markets and the bazaars of the city, and you would see uh, products, even merchants from as far as like Western Asia, uh, all over East Asia. You could even see it by the kind of religious institutions that were in the capital you had of course, you had you know, Buddhist temples, you know, taoist uh, academies, Taoist temples, Confucian academies, Confucian shrines, but you also had you know mosques you also had. Um, synagogues. You also had Nestorian Christian churches. You know, you had, and it's, it, part of this was just reflecting, reflective of how cosmopolitan Chang'an society was. And it's not an accident, this was also when China historically was at its strongest. You know, there's this idea China's is at its strongest when it's open. Or it maybe another way to say it, when the Chinese um, emperors were feeling strong, when they were feeling confident culturally and politically, they allowed them to be open and the times when the, the leadership has felt weaker or felt less confident, that's when they start closing in and they start making it more restrictive. And so one of the things about the Tang Dynasty, it was so much cultural confidence and that allowed this kind of cosmopolitan culture where people came together. You know, you had, for example, monks from China who were like looking at translations of Buddhist sutras going, yeah, that looks wrong. We need to correct that. How would we do that? I've got it. Let's just go to India and they would and they would come back, you know, a decade later with like all the orig- the original documents. I mean, that was just kind of that era. So to me, you know, that's that especially as someone who is, you know, forever a foreigner. And uh and uh uh
0: like, you know, picking up a history book is not something people do to these days. They watch TV, right? Um this, this, I mean, sometimes you have here and there, right? Something on Netflix recently that was the Marco Polo, right? Yes. It's about the uh, Yuan Dynasty, right? Era, um, but like, uh, I, I guess, I guess, a lot of what you're talking about and what you are, you teach, it doesn't exist, right, on uh, on on TV? It
1: uh, outside of China,
0: so in China, yes. Yeah,
1: in China, I mean, this is the thing that all these these. The, the, these events are the products of great TV shows, right? Um, right. So they're based on these events, right? Uh, but it's been it's been harder to translate this outside of China, and I, I mean, you don't have to talk to someone who's in the media as like exactly why that's been the case, mm. but there has it has been a, a challenge getting Chinese stories in front of an international audience in a way that the international audience can appreciate, but in a way that the Chinese uh, that. Chinese back home feels an authentic portrayal, right? Because usually the you know whenever something is popular overseas, they're always like yes, but that's what the foreigners like, right, right, <laughs> and, and that immediately then you know dismisses it as being somehow inauthentic, right? Whether that's true or not, that's not for me to say, but that has been a challenge, and right. then the stuff that's been sort of people think is really authentically Chinese, that has not always uh, that has not as traveled as well, right? And you know again I that's a that's a entertainment question more than a history question
0: <laughs> so okay what would you recommend how to start to, to, to learn a bit of history in a, in a consumable way you know for someone that's not a historian sure. um a certain book you can recommend or, or what or
1: well there's one book i recommend and one podcast i recommend okay uh actually i should probably recommend too but okay one book i would recommend is a book i, I always suggest to people who are coming to china for the first time but it's worthwhile reading even if you live here it's, it's got the rather prosaic title of China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. Okay. And it was written, uh, it's co-written by uh, two academics I respect quite a bit, Jeffrey Wasserstrom and Maura Cunningham, both of whom are solid researchers, but they also are two academics who have done a lot of work writing for popular audiences in, like, magazines, journalism. And so they really, I feel both of them do a really good job, and in this book, of kind it's kind of like an FAQ like okay. a question book ah. it's like you know it's everything from all right so what is confucianism to, okay
0: so uh, it's easy to
1: consume to like okay. what was mao's deal and it's about 160 pages and it's it, it's not in depth but if you're if you're just coming here like i just want to kind of know okay. the basics so i put the link in the bottom here and what else uh two podcasts i might recommend uh, and i'm gonna the first one i would say is the china history podcast hosted by Laszlo Montgomery, in which he has gone through every topic in Chinese history and a nice 30 to 45 minute, well curated uh, podcasts. He gives you a good overview of these. And if you wanna do like, and he has at one point, he has over the course of a couple of years, <coughs> gone from the beginning to the end. You wanna to listen to it one a day as you're jogging. And he, he's got a, a good way of kind of presenting the material as well i think that's a really great way if people want to dive a little bit deeper and then uh you know just self-promotion that uh i I'm david uh, another um, fellow teacher in beijing uh, david moser okay. who uh is uh, and i have uh, our own podcast called barbarians at the gate barbarians at the gate which we take a look at different aspects of uh, chinese history particularly in chinese history and culture and we kind of do deeper dives, generally somewhat irreverent, but deeper dives into some of these issues as well. All right. I'll uh, also put the links to
0: those. Well, how often do you do the podcast? You know? Which I do it
1: once every two or three weeks.
0: Once every two or three weeks? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, interesting stuff. Thank sure. you, Jeremiah. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I love this kind of stories. I love history. It's just that maybe I love watching YouTube videos more. That's my problem, you know, something like that. So it's like... Uh, finding the time and and sitting and reading a book it's uh but uh also uh we should mention your uh i don't remember if we did mention on the podcast the beijing uh, by Foot that uh, you need if you come to beijing you can contact you through the website i guess right
1: yeah so beijingbyfoot.com uh we we offer historic walks and programs for for groups for travel groups and for educational groups and yeah absolutely but if you're coming to beijing um you know look me up i'm happy to help out your group
0: Yeah, it will take you out and uh, try to come on a warmer day than today. Yeah. All right. And this was our podcast. Uh, Thank you again. And if you like what you see, give us the thumbs up. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel. See you next time.